part of social media education is really around socialization. It's not just about what do you do online. It's about what you do online and what you do in real life are intertwined in ways we haven't told you before. And that you need to understand that you can make choices in opting into things and opting out of things. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. I'm Sydney Johnson. Just a second ago, you heard from author, speaker, and school consultant Anna Hamayun. She works with teenagers on organization, time management, and overall wellness. And as tech and social media have accelerated over the years, that's increasingly meant keeping up with the ways that young people are using social media and then advising parents, teachers, and even tech companies like Instagram about what they need to know. Anna's latest book is about what she's learned over the years on this topic, and it's called Social Media Wellness, Helping Teens and Tweens Thrive in an Unbalanced Digital World. I sat down with her recently to learn more about what's happening in this space and how parents and educators can help make sense of the digital and social media world that's happening all around us. We'll hear from Anna right after this. This episode of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Ed Surge Next newsletter. Get the latest news and views about higher education technology each week. Sign up for the EdSurge Next newsletter. Just visit edsurge.com and click on subscribe. Anna, thank you so much for joining us on the EdSurge podcast. Would you tell us a little bit about your background and, and what got you into this work? Sure. Well, my office is located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, and I grew up in Los Altos, California. I moved there when I was 12. And I started working with teens in 2001 on organization and time management. And when they first came into my office, they would tell me their biggest distractions were food, sleep, their pets and daydreaming. And about a decade ago, that really shifted. And then at the same time, I had written two books. That crumpled paper was due last week, all about helping disorganized and distracted boys. And the myth of the perfect girl, all about the culture of perfectionism. And the research for those two books led me to understand that one, students are being distracted in different ways than ever before. And two, we were having the wrong conversations with kids around technology and social media use. And I realized that a lot of adults didn't understand the language of social media. So I spent about five years doing research that came up with a book, Social Media Wellness, because I knew it was really important. And my own background is really unusual because I actually grew up in the Silicon Valley. Most people that do this work didn't grow up around computers the way I did. My mom got a PhD in computer science in the early 80s. And so I really have been around computers and technology all of my life. And I knew that for many adults, when you don't understand the language of technology and social media, it creates a barrier from talking with kids about things that they need to know and they need to have an adult to talk with them about. I think that's really interesting just given the early exposure you've had to technology. You know, how has approaches to parenting with technology changed since you were a child? So that's really funny because when I was in high school, we have to remember 
people didn't have cell phones, right? They had car phones that were rather large and not everyone had them. Uh, It wasn't until I got to college that people got the first version of cell phones that was pretty, you know, regular for people. And then in high school, I, you know, I went to school in the Silicon Valley and it was sophomore, junior year where we got email addresses, but not everyone had them. Nobody checked their email like more than once every couple days. It was kind of like snail mail. I mean, I still used a typewriter to finish my college applications. And I think that's really important because to understand is that how quickly things have changed. When I talk to parents today, that's the one thing I bring up with them is that the smartphone really came out a little over 10 years ago. So things that we consider commonplace today are totally new. And in answer to your question about parenting though, I think the first generation of social media education and parenting was really fear-based. Don't get in trouble. Don't go meet anyone you know you like found on the internet and all of these things. And I think over time, things have shifted or are starting to shift because we realize when we put fear into kids, all that does is send them underground. Like, so they're not talking to us about what they're doing. And that's more detrimental. And that's why I wrote social media wellness because I was like, if we keep sending kids underground where they're doing things that we don't know about, we're not able to have those everyday conversations that we need to have in order to keep kids healthy and safe. You mentioned the just sheer increase in the number of smartphones that students have today and teenagers in particular. I was looking at a recent report from Common Sense Media, which showed that the percentage of teens with smartphones in the U.S. went from 41% in 2012 to 89% in 2018. What is the significance of that that you see for students and teenagers today? That's a great question. And it's really become ubiquitous that everybody, particularly in certain communities that I visit, many teenagers have smartphones. Um, And also what I see is like in many communities, so in the last year I've been to 35 different cities visiting schools and talking to parents and educators and students around social media use. And what I find more and more is that there's a default that kids have 24-7 access to the smartphone. And that's the shift that I think we need to make, is that parents really need to actively create daily and weekly digital detox times for their kids. Because even if they have a smartphone, that doesn't mean they should have 24-7 access to everything, this information overload, and this on-all-the-time mentality that ends up happening. So your work got on my radar because I noticed that you had worked with Instagram around creating parent guidelines. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that process. Sure. So it's helpful to step back and see how that all started. So when social media wellness came out, I was hoping to do a event with somebody in the social media world. And Instagram was incredibly gracious. And one of the members of their policy team did an event with me at Kepler's bookstore in Menlo Park. And then they got to know my work and their policy team read social media wellness. And they reached out to me in the spring and said, you know, we're doing a parent guide because we think it's really important that parents understand how to use Instagram safely. And I was really excited, quite frankly, because in my traveling around and speaking to parents, I realized how little families really knew. So we're in the Silicon Valley and it's quite a bubble. But just last week I was in Buffalo and Rochester and in my presentation in Buffalo, New York, 
a mom in the Q&A started describing Instagram as though she had discovered it just months ago. And it was so refreshing and a great reminder that even though we think all of this is our day-to-day natural, you know, occurrence, that everywhere in the U.S. we have different um, elements of use and different ways that parents are becoming exposed to things. So I found it was really helpful that Instagram wanted to create this. And so what I helped with was the parent discussion questions because what I have found is oftentimes parents want to talk to their kids about social media, but they don't know where to start. And they often start by, I don't understand why you're using this app so much. And my focus is really helping parents to start from a place of positivity and curiosity. So why are you using this app? What do you like about it? And then having kids narrate what they enjoy about using different social media apps and then having them also identify what's energizing for them and what's draining for them online and in real life. Because my work is all about helping parents help kids start to make good choices online and in real life about their use. Why did Instagram want to make these parent guidelines and do other major tech companies have something similar? You know, I can't speak for Instagram, but I think one of the things that came up in the panel when we did the launch in New York in early September was that many Instagram employees are also parents whose kids are growing older and are going to be on the app. And they wanted to find ways to also speak with them and give resources to other parents. It was so interesting. In the launch event in September, I interviewed a parent and a child, um, a teen, that was on Instagram. And she used Instagram for incredibly positive social justice um things that she was involved in and her dad followed her and had followed her for years on Instagram. So I interviewed both of them and it was funny because she said, well, it was just last night that he realized how to make his account private. And I thought that that was a great example of the fact that here's somebody who thinks they're well-versed and yet here's little things that they don't know how to do. One of the tips I often give parents when I give parent education talks is Ask your kids what their friends are using, not just what they're using. And then come from a place of curiosity and openness when you ask them, well, how would I use that app? And see if they'll teach you. And if they won't, go online and do a search for how do you use X app? Because oftentimes that's fully available. On that note, um, the the Common Sense report that I mentioned earlier also pointed out that among 13 to 17 year olds snapchat is the most popular app Um, so this is more of a practical question but what should parents or teachers who aren't on snapchat who don't know what snapchat is what are just some basic things that you think they should know about it and what students are, are doing on there sure well first of all i always say that if your child is on an app you should definitely know how to use it And Snapchat has been popular in part because it's so difficult for anybody over 25 to really like figure out how to use, but it is fun and has features that make it really relevant to to teens and have made it so that kids aren't always sending text messages anymore. Instead, they're sending snaps. Um, I think, you know, the most basic things that parents should know is asking kids why they maintain their Snapchat streaks and what the socialization 
features are around Snapchat so, so that you can get certain icons if you send the most snaps to people. Those kind of things are part of the socialization that I think parents need to be more aware of and they're not. I also think parents should be aware of in general, but also on Snapchat, geolocation features on apps because Snap Map was was introduced a couple years ago, and when a, somebody opens the app, um, you know, and you, the Snap Map feature is enabled, your friends or your followers or the people that you're connected with um, have access to where you are. And in general, that's not just for Snapchat. I think for any app that has these geolocation features, either as opt in or opt out. Many of them are opt-out, so when you join a new app, a lot of times the geolocation is built in, and I think that's one of the major things that parents and educators need to be aware of. And I say educators because a lot of times ed tech is being brought into the classroom, the newest and the latest apps, and teachers want to be really relevant and new, but they don't realize all the data collection that could potentially be taking place the geolocation features that could have problematic outcomes. And I think parents really need to be notified before different apps are used in the classroom when their kids are asked to log in and create an account. When you are talking with schools or teachers or parents, what are some of the most common questions that you get? I think there is different buckets of questions. Um, I'll, I'll break them into three. One is around socialization, right? How do we keep kids from being mean online? The term bullying is often used, but I like to think about it as what happens online is more intertwined into our real life experiences than we've been led to believe. And I say that because in the first wave of social media education, schools often would say, well, that didn't happen on school grounds, so we can't do anything about it. And now more and more what I'm seeing is schools saying, no, we have a policy. If you want to be part of this community, there are standards that you have to follow to create an, a, an environment of inclusivity and belonging. And that's what I argued for in social media wellness because I saw more and more schools say, raising their hands, but I and saying, oh, it's not, it didn't happen here. But I said, but the kids are affected and it affects how they show up in the classroom. So that's one, socialization. The second is distractions. So much of my work has been around executive functioning for the last 17 years. I, I was working on those issues around organization, time management, and long-term planning long before executive functioning became a term. And now for many students, you know, the tool that they need to use in order to complete their work is their biggest distraction from getting work done. So schools really want to talk with me about building curriculum that gets kids buy-in to manage their distractions. Because a lot of my work has been getting kids buy-in over the years to be motivated to compartmentalize their time to manage their distractions. And then finally, I think one of the things is safety. The final thing is safety, right? Um, social, emotional, and physical safety of students when you're bringing technology into the classroom. And again, you're bringing apps into the classroom for learning's sake, and you may not know the background, especially as so many different apps change over time so quickly. Does social media have a place in the classroom? I think we hear a lot for folks who would say yes is, we want to meet students where they're at and you know engage in these things so they're not distractions. Does it have a place in the classroom and, and what would appropriate use look like? Well, that's a complicated question, to be honest, uh, because there have been over the past couple of years where I've traveled to schools around the U.S., things that I find 
problematic. I think one of the things that a school needs to do is step back and figure out what their social media policy is and use parents and teachers and students themselves to craft that policy. Like I found it a problem when a second grade teacher had a Twitter account that she was posting kids photos on. And I asked, do the parents know that you're posting their photos? Because to me, that's a problem if they don't. And she was creating it as a way of sharing information and sharing um, a learning opportunities with kids. And I don't think that her in- motives were wrong, but I think that the school didn't have a policy on social media and technology. So that's one thing. But the other thing is, you know, in some ways, and there is research to back this up, social media can be used in positive ways, particularly if it's used to enhance learning. So if it's ways that kids are discussing different topics, if it's like a virtual study group of sort, that can actually be positive. But it's all about how they're using it. So basically, my my answer to that is we have to back up and encourage all schools to really sit with what they think their social media policy should be. I don't think that we should encourage kids to use social media apps before the age that is given in the terms of use. I think that's really important for schools to, to adhere to that as a way of saying, you know, we adhere to terms of use and rules. Um, and then also I think parents should ha- play a role in understanding what is happening in the classroom when it comes to social media use proactively rather than reactively. Are schools doing a good job at teaching smart social media use or what could they be doing better? Well, that's a really great question because a lot of things have shifted over the years. And as I said, the first generation of social media education really focused on fear. Um, Like, don't do this because you won't get into college or you won't get that job. And that did scare kids into not doing some things, but it also scared them to going underground. And I wrote a piece in the New York Times last year on the secret social media lives of teenagers based on what kids were going underground and doing. And now what we find is that a lot of the education is really focused on digital citizenship and being a good digital citizen. There's nothing wrong with that. But what I think the shift needs to be, and that's why I wrote Social Media Wellness and I've been going to schools for the last few years, is that we actually need to create an opportunity to get students buy-in by motivating them using the idea that they have autonomy and that they have choices in how they spend their time online, that they are competent and that we know that they can make good choices. We have high expectations of them and that we help each student find a sense of belonging within their school community. Because when students feel a sense of belonging and inclusivity within their school community, they're less likely to do things that deviate or create a negative outcome. And so part of social media education is really around socialization. It's not just about what do you do online. It's about what you do online and what you do in real life are intertwined in ways we haven't told you before. And that you need to understand that you can make choices in opting into things and opting out of things in filtering in things or filtering out. I'll give you an example that I think is important. There was an article um, at a, in a school, I believe it was in South Carolina, where a student took a photo of another student on the toilet and then shared it on social media. And that student is being charged in family court. And I say that this is important for a number of reasons because parents can use it as a conversation starter and so can educators as 
not just what would you do if you if you saw that online but this idea of sending sharing storing photos being a positive member of your community how do you stop these things from from going further and what do you do to provide a sense of belonging and inclusivity within your community so those things are less likely to happen we've seen cases where students have been disciplined for things that they do both on or off campus that have been they've been caught because it's been posted on social media and where do you think schools should draw the line when it comes to monitoring that sort of activity that's a really excellent question because it ties into a lot of different pieces um I think it's complicated in public schools versus independent or private schools. There's a lot of different nuances in terms of what schools have the opportunity to do. But I think part of it is all about stepping back and being proactive and preventative and creating a positive social environment for students. And that's what we're not doing really well. It's like we give kids social media education and tell them not to do things online and that they'll be punished, but we don't then step back and say, hey, how do you want to spend your time? How can we find a place for each student where they feel like they belong in the school community so they're less likely to feel like they have this secondary life online that they may take out some of those frustrations. I know that's an overarching view, but my work has been about helping kids find and figure out what they enjoy doing and helping them find more time to do that. And when you do, you notice that a lot of those behavioral issues go away, especially when you do it in tandem with this idea that you have choices in how you spend your time online, and we know that you can make good choices. So in the book, I use the three S's, healthy socialization, effective self-regulation, and overall safety as a way of framing it for parents, educators, and students. In that same common sense media report that I mentioned before, it, it showed that teens are more likely to report that social, social media makes them feel less lonely and, and makes them feel less depressed or less anxious. And I think that probably goes against a lot of what we would assume. Why is that not the full story? Well, a lot of what I talk about in my work is this idea that social media isn't good or bad. It is a new language and a tool for communication. And for some kids, it can be really energizing. So for example, I interviewed a bunch of my own high school students for the book trailer video for social media wellness. And when I did, one of the students says, you know, it's so much easier for me to have a conversation sometimes online than it is in person. And it wasn't as though she wasn't working towards that. But for many students, for many different reasons, maybe they're exploring different identities. Maybe they're, they're in a rural community where they don't feel like their ideas would be understood or accepted or they don't feel like they have a community where they live. For kids that are dealing with chronic and life-threatening illnesses that might be hospitalized, these are all just really easy, quick examples of kids who have found energizing communities online. One of the stories, I don't think it ended up making it in my book, but I used one of the anonymous online platforms that was location-based that no longer exists. And I would go on it during near my office in Los Altos to see what were kids really saying, because it was mostly like 7th, 8th, ninth graders. And one day... Um, somebody had, had written in and said, hey, does anybody know a good resource for teen depression, right? Like a good therapist. Or, And I almost wrote in myself because I was like, 
here are some resources in the area. But before I did, about 20 responses with really good resources and also positive supportive messages came through. And so that is an example for me of what are the positive things that kids have found online with a sense of community. If they're going online and in real life, they might feel a sense of shame that they shouldn't feel, but they do feel asking a certain question. Maybe there's a community where they feel like a sense of belonging. Now, the flip side to that is there were some students, of course, who did report that using social media increased their sense of anxiety or depression. So what are some important things to know about that or, or maybe even things to look out for? Well, one of the things I thought was really important when you look at the data is that teens with low social emotional well-being experience more of the negative effects of social media than kids with high social emotional well-being. The reason why that's important is a lot of times we want to be quick to say social media is the reason. But if we look at the data, many of those kids were struggling before social media. And so if you have a child that has low social emotional well-being, making sure that they don't spend as much time on screens and they have good, they have ways that they can plug in online and in real life to find that sense of belonging, that self-worth is even more critical because the data all show that, you know, those students that had that low self, social emotional well-being experienced much more of those negative effects. How should teachers or parents um, navigate monitoring students social media use while still honoring a sense of privacy and and giving a bit of space and freedom there? It's so interesting you ask that question because it's like one of the top questions I get asked at schools. And I'll back up and say a conversation that I had with a school dean who often has, not often, but occasionally has the police um, or public safety officer in her office because of something that's happened online. And then she'll have parents in the office as well. And the public safety officer will say, you know, weren't you checking your kid's phone? And the parent will say, no, because of my child's privacy. And the reminder is is that the parents are responsible for whatever kids do on their phones. And I always say that safety is of the utmost importance over privacy. And a lot of times parents don't fully realize the incremental use that we should be giving kids. So you don't just give a smartphone to a fifth grader and give them 24-7 access. I often encourage you get a flip phone first, you you give it to them at certain times and you take it away the rest of the time. And then you ease into use. But before you give them any sort of phone, that you make the conversation that you have full access to everything. Because when you come from a framework of I can casually pick up your phone at any time. It creates that filter for kids that, hey, my mom and dad have full access. And it also allows kids to say to their friends who might be sending them inappropriate things or things that they say to say, hey, my mom and dad monitor this because it it often puts they, they need to shift the blame, especially in a time when their relationships are so important to them and socialization is so important to them that you give them that opportunity. And then as they get older, to answer your question, I think it changes based on your your trust level, but at the same point, you should always have, even when your child is a senior in high school, a sealed envelope with their passwords in it as a rule of access to their phone. Because in case something happens, you want to make sure that you have the access to their phone 
if needed. Um, I think one of the things as we close to think about is how can we encourage kids to use healthy socialization, effective self-regulation, and overall safety as a framework of thinking about how they can make behavioral changes, whether or not we're watching to create a more positive community online and in real life. This has been the EdSurge On Air podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you like to listen to your podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our newsletters. Come back next week for more on the future of education.